Hello and welcome to They Just Get It. I'm your host, Tyler Chisholm, and I'm excited. I'm excited and I'm honored, uh, as I often am, to have Miss Robin Zimmerman on the show today. How are you doing, Robin? I'm very well, thanks. How are you, Tyler? I am good. We were just doing a little catch up before yeah. uh, before we push the record button, as we do. It, uh, January 2020, you and I, this is our second, this will be our second episode. We recorded it, I think, in 2019, before the world, as we as we all know, it changed around us, which is going to have a little bit of relevance into our conversation today. But Robin, you reached out to me via email, maybe oh, a month and a half ago, and we had a conversation about mental health and it was a conversation that was personal. It was a conversation that was your observations on the system, your own personal experiences. You, you shared a lot, which is, it was an episode that was close to my heart because it was so honest. And when you reached out to me to the request of like, Hey, I've loved some things. I've got some things I'd like to talk about over the last couple of years. Can we do another episode? I was absolutely honored to absolutely say yes and, and create an environment of trust and, 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 and psychological safety. It's a topic that's coming up a lot in the corporate world right now, which maybe we can touch on, uh, how we create a corporate term for what we're just trying to destigmatize the challenges we all go through on a, da on a daily basis. So with that, what have you been up to the last couple of years? Kind of what triggered uh, even the email to reach out and want to come back on and kind of share and talk about your message? And I'll leave, uh, I'll turn the mic to you for a minute. For sure, thank you. Um, so the last few years, um, like I'm continuing to work with Alberta Health Services, I've transitioned as an outreach worker, um, currently in a housing program. So I'm responsible for supporting our clients just to be connected to community resources, um, treatment support, um, <clears throat> things from food to furniture, to income support, to housing, like you name it. Um, so when I came, like originally in 2020, I was doing peer support um, and was part of the inception of that program. So I've transitioned a little bit and part of what uh, spawned that or spurred that was uh, working on a bachelor's social work. So my, I guess, mid to end term goal is to transition into a social work uh, position. Um, not done my degree yet. The, the hope and the plan is to be done by the end of next summer, 2023. So, nice. mm -hmm. um, yeah. And so I think, you know, that's more on like, you know, the professional and the academic mm -hmm. side of things and some of those more didactic goals, but the other dimension and reason I wanted to connect with you was about, um, more of the personal piece and talking a little bit more about stigma and the impact of mental health on the family system. Um, the the personal system like how it affects um your own identity um and and also how i feel that if we can sometimes we all like people living with mental health and you know i live with a mental health condition i, I live with bipolar one disorder um not everyone can come out and talk about their experience it's it's very uncomfortable it's very uh, a sense of exposure and revealing um but I've, I've kind of just been in a place that's like, well, why hide behind that? Like that's, you know, if someone has diabetes and they're having complications with their diabetes, you know, they'll openly talk about it or someone's struggling with cancer. Like there are these, these stigmas that happen and appear. Um, but I think one of the best ways with mental health is to talk, is to yeah, talk. Would, because that agree. opens up the door for other people, right? So... It creates a, it creates a it creates an environment of, of if it's permissibility like oh well, if you're talking about it then I guess it must be safe and you know we we we, we as humans I think it's ingrained deep in our in ourselves we look and we look and see what's safe and if it looks well okay I might try that there's always that kind of built in kind of fear mechanism to keep us from doing things that are risky but you know we live in a world where that's much more psychological than it is physical now uh, curious just to get a little bit of a. a the news has been very active with oh mental health crisis the the, the degree of mental health issues that have are, that have increased or maybe awareness of such specifically over the pandemic so working with hs and working in the system would you say is that a true statistic like have you at the front line have you observed that through the last couple of years with people forced isolation basically just bombarded with stress every day the news and you know everything through through covid was that a reality? Did it really, did, was there an increase or are we just becoming more aware of something that was, was there all along? Well, a lot of, a lot of the isolation that existed prior to the restrictions and the changes, um, that was a big part of client life. And <clears throat> that's a big part of living with mental health is 
you know, increased loneliness, harder to connect to community, harder for people mm. to accept you and build relationships and friendships. So that existed already. So for sure, you 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 compound that with with uh, you know you know restrictions and forced isolation. And we definitely had people that um, were more that were that were more lonely and. Um, yeah, it was. I appreciate what you said. Like it's it that isolation, that inability to connect, to build to build a peer group, to be part of your community, family, neighborhood, whatever, whatever layer. And then we put a we put a a, a regulated lockdown on top of all that. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so someone who was maybe you know on the fringe of of not feeling connected to community, but was still getting out and was still going to the grocery store and still seeing that same familiar face in the lobby of their apartment building, all of a sudden that was shut down. So. I could see just that alone being an amplification factor for people that uh, when the isolation with your own thoughts can, can, if they're not, if they're in a negative direction, they, it it doesn't, there's nothing to break the pattern or to break that cycle when you're just inside Mm -hmm. your own head, staring at the same four walls. And for many people I know that, you know, haven't wrestled with mental health, they dealt with depression. There was different words started to show up. I think in friend groups that you're right, how comfortable people were like, Oh wow. Like I'm struggling with this. This is hard. And it takes a it takes a strong person who's very centered with self to be able to even say that in a peer group where that was never part of the conversation prior. Mm-hmm. Hmm. And so, I think you know, I mean, that's the piece of being able to have the skills, like the cognitive skills, to work through and problem solve, like some of that isolation. You know, you can't always do that just by changing your thoughts or your mind. You need to physically change your environment, and you know take action and, um, transform that way. But, um, yeah, I think it's something that, uh, like isolation and dealing with that piece is a huge part of mental health. And I think, you know, on a personal note, it's important to talk about that because, you know, sometimes I think for families and communities to understand the mental health piece, like the actual disorder and, Mm -hmm. you know, in my case, like bipolar is this, this uh, polarization between depressive states and manic states. And for myself, it's like years apart. Like I go, like depression typically falls after a manic episode, but like my mania is years. It's, it's unbelievable. It's like my illness goes dormant, you know? So interesting. So yeah, cause you think about it as like, well, you have it or you don't versus it coming in cycles, which can be over year periods of time. And I think we're just so, so we, I am so uneducated because, oh, bipolar, it's a term that also can get thrown around pretty loosely with really ultimately, I have no idea what it means. Where, you know, diabetes, use that as a reference earlier. I grew up with like, oh, this person has diabetes. My grandfather has diabetes. So therefore he does this for that. That wasn't weird. That wasn't uncomfortable. That was just the fact that he had this. And it was very much part of it. Where a lot of the mental health disorders, the labels as an individual that hasn't been that exposed to them, besides just the terminology, it's really easy to not even know what they really mean. And, and what is, oh, someone has bipolar. Does that mean one thing or could that mean 20 different things? I'm suspicious it's more the latter. Mm-hmm. Which brings in the piece of lived experience and how helpful, like having a community or even one or two friends. It's not saying it's like, oh, you live with a certain condition and you should have a friend who also has that condition. <laughs> I understand your word. It's, it's not a one-to-one yeah, statement. <laughs> you know, but that that lived experience is really helpful in having those relationships where people can say, you know, I get it and this is really hard and um, cause it's tough on family, right? It's, it's mm-hmm. the mental health piece. I think if you don't understand the experience firsthand, it's hard to truly understand like what is mania? What is psychosis? What does this feel like? How does this transformation happen? Um, you know, we can't see the neurological, shifts in the brain when these episodes happen we just see the changes in behavior and um that that's also can be hard right because we you know as outsiders or as family can really um you know blame you know blame the person for their actions when they're ill or um so a lot of it is trying to erode or shift that ignorance that unknown that um, some of those difficult feelings that, and the impact it has on the family as well. Is that kind of part of, you know, just my own philosophy here? So much of our world, I've been listening to so many 
alternative health podcast recently. And like, we're so good at, if you break your arm, we know how to deal with it because we can see it. It literally mm. comes from battlefield triage. Like so many innovations have come out of just like dealing with making sure the physical can function, keep it alive. Like keep the, keep the big, you know, walking bag of cells and keep it functioning. But the intangibles of what we can't see and especially around the mental and the attitude, well, just choose happiness. But like you said, there's a chemical reality going on that doesn't even allow that to be an option. But it's very hard to see and it's very intangible. Our medical system, I think, has gotten very good. If I break my arm, there's no question. I know exactly where I'm going to go and what I'm going to do. If I'm chronically feeling run down or not feeling good about my life, that's a different, that feels very different. And feels like it feels like we are on a trend, on a trend that's bringing those more to the forefront. Is it just part of this is the journey we're on and conversations like this are exactly what we need to help people understand that just because you didn't fall down the stairs and break your arm doesn't mean something isn't physically or medically or chemically wrong inside, inside your body. For sure. Absolutely. You know, and I think again, it goes back to education. Like usually, you know, bipolar is very interesting. Like you said, cause colloquial colloquially in our, um, in our culture, we use it like in pop culture, very sensationally, right? Like, oh, that's so bipolar. She has bipolar. Um, we hear it in our music, <laughs> you know, but actually a lot of people don't really know the difference. Like there's actually two types of bipolar disorder. There's bipolar one and bipolar two. And like even that in and of itself, people are like, well, what does that mean? And, um, you know, I, th I think it's in terms of being open to understand and learn about mental health means um changing your perspective and looking at it as a medical condition and not mm. being afraid um and trying to really reduce that judgment you know and so you're so right i'm just thinking about a conversation i've been where someone like one day is up or one day is down or one day is hot or one day is cold however you want to describe it guy man it doesn't matter gender is relevant like oh they're so bipolar and it just gets said in, in almost like a, a like a, an oversimplification of a label which then just perpetuates the stigma of negativity Maybe the person just was having a bad day. Maybe it has nothing to do with bipolar. But you're right, pop culture has taught us to use it in a certain way, which is that layman's armchair uh, media-based definition. It's like, oh, one day you're in a good mood, one day you're in a bad mood. You must be bipolar. <laughs> it's, it's, a, it's an interesting jump to a, to a very complex term, but somehow it gets thrown around pretty loosely. In our, and pop culture is so responsible. Like, you know, so many of us are educated through TV or media or music in a way that probably is not correct. It probably amplifies stigmas or, you know, I, I don't know. It, it can go either way, but I'm just going to be laugh when I think about how many times I've heard that term used, probably completely in, out of context of reality or, or, right. or certainly not helpful to the individual. Let's put it that way. And then the, the funny thing is, is that's just not what it is, right? Like, you know, it's the same saying we hear, you know, colloquially people say like, oh, that's so schizo, which is terrible, right? That, you know, referring to schizophrenia, like someone, and again, like most people don't know what schizophrenia really is, you know, it's, mm -hmm. it's a lot of assumptions and a lot of what our, our media and uh, our cultural experiences are and what's that kind of shapes our understanding, but that's, that's not really, it's that's not, not really true. So I think coming from it like professionally, like I'm passionate and I like to talk about um, kind of demystifying some of those diagnoses, like especially more complicated, potentially severe ones like schizophrenia, bipolar. Um, I think it's important to be able to talk about that standing from behind my work experience and my training and, you know, now being in my BSW program. And, but the, I think the, the largest, are the best currency that I carry around mental health is that I've been through it. And not only have I been able to rebound myself, you know, from very, very difficult episodes from mania and then falling into, you know, sort of the slumpish depression and then trying to, you know, coming back to, you know, that resiliency piece doing it myself. But I've also worked from a peer support lens and from more of a clinical lens as an outreach worker to be able to help and support other people and being able, you know, this overlaps with our conversation a few years ago, but also being able to work with our clients and, and just relate quite differently than a lot of my, my coworkers, um, without saying anything, but just in my heart and having that, that experience and that feeling. And, you know, I think clients really pick up on, on the ability to empathize and relate and 
you know how, how thinking about our thinking about the system and you know being the you know, in this case hs not everyone is going to have have had had a shared experience like yourself and you know we did talk last time and i remember specifically you talked about some of the insensitivities and some of the jokes or the off-color language that was potentially used or that you encountered in that system for individuals that were there and in the role to help people with mental health challenges of, of a variety of sorts, but even themselves being insensitive to it. And I appreciate you have a unique kind of background or a unique composition when it comes to your experience and now layering that in with your personal experience, your lived experience, and now adding education on top of that and, form, and formalizing it. How do we, what's your perspective on a system where not everyone has that all those ingredients. We all have a we all have our life experiences. Someone might just have the education piece, and then as they work, they become more of the experience piece. But that bedside manner or that empathy that you said, which is so important as humans, we pick it up, we feel it. You don't have to say, you know, if you have to say you're empathetic, you're probably not. You're just you are or you aren't a little bit in in terms of how you, you show up. From that perspective, what's your thought on the fact that not everyone is going to have all that unique mix? How do we make sure that everyone's still delivering the same quality of care? Mm. That's a really good question, actually, Tyler. And, and it makes me think a lot about the inpatient experience. Like, what is it like to be on a mental health unit in hospital, um, interacting with nursing staff? And, um, you know, and that's a, that's a really high stress, acute mm -hmm. environment, right? So nurses are working hard. Uh, patients are very unwell. You know, it's like this coalescence of psychosis of all these people's different type of psychosis not everyone in the <laughs> hospital is going through coming out of and working through psychosis but you know it's a it's a it's a challenging place and I think you know from my experience um I you know I think it's a really mixed bag you know like I've met some really supportive nurses that are sensitive um and I've seen some nurses that are very impatient and um you know, at the end of the day, see you as a problem and really um, just see your illness, you know, and it's hard because when you're in the acute stage of your illness, I think it's hard for responding staff to be able to see who you are, right? It's hard to see. They're trying to get you back to your baseline. They're trying to get you back to a stable place, but in the process, it's hard. So I have, I'm sensitive for the staff. I, I have empathy and mm -hmm. like, I understand um but i think we've talked a bit about this before i think and i think it comes down to humanism you know i think it really i was going to say humanity is the word that's showing up for me as i'm listening to you talk like how do you not lose the humanity when you're while you're trying to save the arm but with mental health it's such a broader concept than just fixing the broken arm or, or the wound <laughs> it's true and it's it's such a distressing time it's distressing for patients it's distressing for staff um mm -hmm. and um I am sensitive to that. This is kind of the word I'm thinking of. You know, I am I am sensitive to that. And we and you can't you'd have to live in a bubble to not realize that we have a very taxed medical system. We have overworked healthcare workers, like an overworked, underpaid. I don't think there's any amount of money that sometimes could be paid to balance out what they need to deal with. And I've known a bunch of nurses over the years, and some were very sensitive and empathetic. Others were. I would say for lack of a better description, like battle hardened. They were like, mm -hmm. they saw you as the problem. They moved you through. That was like, they mm -hmm. were, they were good at getting the job done. Would I have called them caring individuals just as, as humans? Probably not. I'm not, and I'm not being critical. I'm just making observations uh, you know, you, you, I knew some emergency room nurses. They were, whew, you, those were not the ladies you want to mess with. They would, yeah. man, yeah. I, <laughs> I had a healthy sure. fear and respect. <laughs> and I say that with uh, all, ultimate respect because they had a job to do that often, the humanity wasn't the number one thing on the table. And I'm making my own projections. So if there's anyone mm -hmm. listening, if they want to reach out and send me some hate mail, that's fine. Uh, I'm making observations based on relationships and, and isolated individuals that I know. I've never worked in the system. So I, you pick up what the media shares with you and then individuals you happen to know that were nurses or doctors and they have their point of views on, on, on things. And they're often frustrated due to lack of resources and the ones that want to give care, like, how can I give care? I have two minutes. Like I don't have time. And it, 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 it kind of bends on its own. It breaks under its own weight. It feels like. Mm -hmm. Right. And, and I think it's, I mean, it's important feedback from the patient perspective of that experience on the inpatient level, like in hospital, because like I said, that's such a challenging time. And I think that is a time when, you know, mm. patients need probably the most support. Um, and those interventions are so important. Um, and, you know, demeanor, 
uh, bedside manner, way of connecting, conversation, tone, like all those things. And I don't think you need to have lived experience in your family or for yourself. Like you don't have to be a nurse with lived experience or to be empathetic. You know, to, yeah. To be effective. Like I, I don't think so. Not at all. But mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. it's interesting as our society and it, do you feel, do you feel from someone who lives it, works it and experiences it? Are we on the right path? That's just not going as fast as we all would like. Cause I do appreciate things take time and we go through cycles as you know, and five years ago, 10 years ago to now, the ability to even for you and I to have a conversation like this, it, it feels easier. It feels more mainstream, more accepted. I'm not even sure the right words to use. It's more trendy to talk about mental health right now. And that's a good thing because at least it's getting the conversation out. I'm not saying we're doing it right or doing it wrong, but at least it's, you know, there's billboards about bullying. There's, 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 there's TV campaigns around certain things that, you know, certain brands have latched onto, which is a whole other marketing conversation. But are we just, are we on the right right path, quote unquote, it's just not as fast as it needs to be for the people that need the acceptance and, 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 and need the help or need the support? Um, I think that's, uh, you know, that's on a multi-system uh, level, you know, like that's the community level. Um, you know, that's the agencies kind of from the inside out, the, the staff, let's say at the drop-in center or Alpha House or the source or any of our community support supports for people living in homelessness and struggling with mental health, like, you know, that's happening, you know, I think understanding and transformation because that's the industry, obviously, and, and the work on the day-to-day -day is doing that with clients, right? But I do think um, when we look at pockets of the population, people with different privilege, people with different access to resources, people who've never been touched by mental health, you know, who don't know what it's like to live in financial struggle. Like, you know, like it, it's, mm -hmm. it's, you miss, I think that, I think that's kind of why I wanted to talk today because I feel my position's really unique based on a lot of different identities that I have. Like you said, I'm educated. Mm -hmm. I've lived experience. Um, I'm from like an upper middle class background. Um, I struggle immensely, like living with bipolar disorder, but I think, you know, that's, that's the currency and that's the value of what I bring to the table. And I hope because I kind of hit different pockets of the population, um, that I can reach certain people, you know, mm -hmm. like, I, you like know, I appreciate that. Yeah. and some people don't want to talk about it. Right. Like, <laughs> and that's, and, that, and that's hospital, okay. Like, that's okay. Some people yeah. are like, I don't want to talk about what happened in hospital. Or I don't want to know about your, and that's fine. Right. Um, mm -hmm. but I think the, the more quiet you are, the more we don't talk about the more, the less we normalize it, you know? And I mm -hmm. think that's what I'd like to see more of in my experience in talking about bipolar and mental health is like this is this exists and this is part of the human experience you know and it doesn't discriminate but you, you talked about socioeconomic and it's the level of resources or maybe support system that you might have if these encounters but as humans you can be upper middle class or you can be somebody on the lower echelon socioeconomically and mentally by like the the diseases disease doesn't discriminate necessarily i know lifestyle factors play in when it comes to health but with mental health, you can be affected by it and be quote unquote from a successful family. And there's no reason you should have these hardships versus someone who's grew up in a completely different socioeconomic and didn't have maybe some of the coping mechanisms, but mentally, chemically, if the, if, if the imbalance, if, if things are off in your brain, they're off in your brain. It doesn't necessarily discriminate to where you happen to sit on the echelon of, you know, wealth or access to access to uh, care. And you've heard that saying, you know, instead of asking or saying, you know, what's wrong with you, the question is what happened to you? Because <laughs> we can't we can't look at mental health and addiction anymore without looking at trauma. And that trauma goes yeah, back really to point. childhood, yeah. to adolescence. I mean, the precipitating factor that diagnosed me, the onset of my bipolar one disorder was losing my mom when I was 17. Like she died really fast of metastasized breast cancer. And that was enough, you know, your brain doesn't stop developing until you're 25. And um, I was very close with my mother and it was a huge trauma, you know? So I wouldn't say it's, it, it's not formulaic that you have to have experienced trauma to have a mental health diagnosis, but that correlation is very, very high. 
Uh, Certainly you're hearing a lot more. um, So many of my, I have a group of friends that were all very proactive in terms of like, well, if we're going to be better today, we often have to unpack what made us this way in the first place, whatever that means. And it doesn't have to be from a, from a mental health perspective, but it's like, ah, there's certain behaviors that are no longer serving me or that are, and oftentimes you'll look back and you're working with coaches, counselors, therapists, depending on the environment. I appreciate it. it doesn't have to be broken to get to be fixed or to be improved upon. I don't use the word broken and fixed. That's the wrong terminology. But I, I, oftentimes it relates to some type of past experience that drove a set of beliefs home that 20 years later are no longer valuable. And those can manifest in so many different ways. But the in the medical system, are you seeing like, is that is that becoming more part of the conversation to addressing that this isn't just what happened this week. It might've been what happened 20 years ago or 30 years ago or 10 years ago. Is that becoming more, cause that's so abstract and it's harder to pin down, but is there more of a recognition around that? Certainly in the media, you're hearing it being talked about more or certainly I am in the day to day. I guess if I'm in the hospital environment, I often don't have time to look at the past in that way. So how are you seeing that show up in the different sectors that you work in? from outpatient to, you know, someone coming into the hospital in more of an acute kind of triage type situation? Well, I think in essence, we don't want to isolate the illness just in and of itself. Like we come into hospital, we're focusing on symptoms, we're focusing on stability, and we're focusing on coming back to a baseline, right? That's the inpatient initiative and objective, right? Um, But when, you know, and we don't, you know, inpatient, we don't always look at, you know, patient history and go super deep, especially when we're triaging and you don't have a lot of time and you're just, you're really trying to just get people um, better quickly, right? But a community, you know, we have understandably demographic backgrounds of all of our clients and, um, you know, like you said, mental health doesn't discriminate. Not all of our clients are living in a situation of homelessness and living with mental health and addiction, you know, concurrently at the same time. Not everyone is like that. Um, but for the majority, for sure, like we see, um, we see a trauma background informing the mental health and we see sort of a breakdown of skills and ability for people to cope and manage um, because they've just lived so long with their condition. They haven't had access to resources to work on things. Um, there's a lot of factors, right? It, not having necessarily strong insight into the illness. Everyone's different, right? But Of course. Yeah, no, it is very personal. I was listening to I messaged you earlier. I'm on a big podcast because Grayson but help. They talked about just our immune system being constantly under attack. You know, the last 70, 80 years, we've had so many new introductions of different chemicals and different environmental factors that the human body is still trying to deal with. And that's why you're seeing so many illnesses that used to be reserved for the 60 plus crowd are now showing up at 35 or 40. But it's that constant barrage over time that just wears down your system and all of a sudden, boom, rheumatoid arthritis shows up when you're 35 or diabetes or some of these more, what can be called lifestyle uh, onset diseases. If you think about mental health, if someone has been under stress or kind of under attack in because of their environment from a young age due to maybe a, a constant stream of small traumas and never really developed, like, you know, I talked before, the resiliency and the grid and the ability to adapt to adversity when it comes, because it happens to all of us, but how we respond next is really based on how worn down our system is and what tools we have to actually just thinking about the physical versus the mental. If I haven't had the tools and it's just another thing in my life, sooner or later, like there, there's a breaking point, I think, for, for everybody. And t- that, the longer it goes, the harder it is to be resilient when the life event happens, the, 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 the eviction, the termination at work or the relationship failing or getting into lockdown for two years because of COVID. <laughs> and all of a sudden that becomes the straw that breaks the, the, the back kind of, kind of mindset. Mm-hmm. And yeah, poor coping and not having a strong support system, um, unfortunately, is, is a big part of the problem. Mm-hmm. So with the outpatient work and, and, and some of even with your working to your bachelor's of social work, is that mechanism in place to then provide that support network? And oftentimes when people don't have it, do you then become, or does that part of the system, is it intended to become part of that support system that might not be there with family and community? And we'll talk, we can talk about that because I think that's almost another category. We're trying to formalize what, you know, I, I heard the old joke the other day, you know, coaching is really popular these days. They used to just be called good friends, but now we pay them to coach us and be there for us. And I'm not saying right. that's bad, but it was a comedian <laughs> making a joke about it. Yeah. And I was like, ah, oh, you know, touche. That's a good joke. I get where you're going. I get you're going with that. 
Uh, but at the same time, I think everyone should have a coach or they should have someone in their life to provide an external perspective. And if that's family, great. If it's not, then hire someone if you have the means. But in the social work and the outreach programs, is that super, is that plugging in some of that community for them to be able to have that support in a formalized fashion? For sure. We see that in our programs, um, you know, through peer support service, through recreation services, like outings, community outing with clients. Um, a lot of my outreach work actually, like it's a lot of the minutia and the getting things done for clients, but a big part of, for me, what I believe outreach is, is making that connection and the socialization piece and, and not like, oh, I'm, we're going to socialize you and like, you know, check the box, you know, but just <laughs> back to that humanistic piece, being able to like knock on your apartment door and say, Hey, what are you doing this morning? Can I take you for a coffee? And do you want to go for a walk and have a chat, you know, mm. um, so that's a huge part of mental health and the recovery paradigm, right, is having really strong support and um, trying to have some of those resources in place, not only like addiction treatment resources, because a lot of people without the coping skills historically turn to addiction um, and turn to that type of refuge because they're suffering so much with their trauma and their mental health symptoms. And it's, uh, we see that a lot as well. So I've often heard that referred to as self-medicating. Is that is that a fair way to say that? Like the way you talked about it, it makes sense to me of like they're dealing with this trauma, they're dealing with this pain that they can't deal with. So they, you know, addiction shows up as a way to self-medicate. Is that the right term or is that another street term? <laughs> um, yeah, I'd say that's accurate. Like okay. to, to self-medicate. Um, Which notoriously as a society, we do it with alcohol. We do, There's a lot of ways that are acceptable self-medication right. and then there's a lot of ways that aren't, which is another whole stigma. Except. Absolutely. Yeah, alcohol sure. is such a destructive substance, but it's acceptable, so that's okay. For sure. <laughs> but that's, a, that. Feel, I'm sorry, I feel like that's a whole other podcast we just opened up there. Yes, yeah. Stig, stigmatization of what substance is acceptable and which one makes you a bad person, quote unquote. <laughs> yeah, and it's hard, you know, when we, when we look at acceptance, I think that's a big piece when we support people with mental health. If you're talking about your family member, you're talking about a client you work with, is how do you accept someone for who they are, where they are in that stage of change? You're not trying to put them further along and um, you're not trying to change that person, you know? Because sometimes it's all about, you know, wanting to control the situation and change the situation and going through crisis mental health, especially in the family system is very uncomfortable and you have that feeling of like, I just need to control it. I need to change it. I need, yeah. I need this to be different. <clears throat> I love what you said, who they are, but then you said where they are. I really like that one because I'm a, I like to solve problems, but sometimes they, that person just wants to chat. I don't need to try to run in and solve the problem. Just making that about me for a second. I'm like, Oh geez, I got to just shut up. Like they're not asking me for a solution here. I just need to meet them where they are. And that can be very uncomfortable as the, as the other person, as the, lis as the listener, as the person. I care so much, I want to fix you. Ooh, wait a second, you're going to fix me? Like that mindset breaks down immediately <laughs> with the words that show up. Mm -hmm. Who they are and who they are and, 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 where, and where they are. And you see when that you in family the most, right? Like, yeah, totally. It's kind mm -hmm. of paternalistic. We see it in, in work <laughs> as well, like working with, with clients in mental health. Um, but that goes back to respecting client agency, respecting, you know, just because someone lives with a mental health condition uh, doesn't mean that they don't have dignity. Oof, and, I think this is powerful. And I think that hmm. that gets undermined a lot. Well, how powerful giving someone back a piece of their own dignity, a sense of pride or a sense of self, how a sense of self that's maybe different than the one that they have through the past, you know, by the time they arrive at an opportunity to work with you, there's probably been many years and many pitfalls of lost relationships and jobs and economic and children, like so many things can, losing your dignity, that's so powerful, but yet so hard to measure. It's like our medical system, well, how do I measure dignity? But yet when you say it, it's got so much weight to me. What a great word. It's a word I don't, mm -hmm. it's a word doesn't show up a lot. I don't hear it a lot. So when you think about the work you do, like, what are some of the signs that you see if you're working with an individual or you're supporting them? And be careful with the terms I use. You're helping them, working with them, befriending them. When you see dignity start to show up in their life again, what does that look like to you? How do, how do you, how do, and again, I know it's individual, but what are some mm -hmm. of the indicators that you recognize? I think in a lot of ways it's confidence. Mm. 
Mm, you know, okay. if, if you're if you're looking at the client dignity and this sort of sense of restoration or recuperation or bringing back or remembering, um, because I think you know, for a lot of time, people mental health makes you feel very unwhole. It doesn't make you feel complete, and because you know, a lot of episodes happen like they're outside of your control. Like it's literally having yourself be hijacked for a period of time. <laughs> wow, that's a great um, way to say it. <laughs> you know, and you, you 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 literally become a different person, like your perspective and you don't have insight and all of this happens, you know? So because of that, you know, you you come back to a place of stability and it's really hard sometimes to look at yourself and say, like or to sense or feel that dignity, you know? Um, imagine for a client who's relying on a system who needs a lot of support with resources and they're part of a mental health outpatient program and they're in the system, um, that can feel uncomfortable, right? It's like, I'm relying on you and I need you to do all these things for me. Um, that also, in a way, undermines someone's dignity. So that's where the humanism is really important. And all those things are just minutiae. Like, so, so what? You need help with getting a furniture referral or... You know, you don't make enough money on H, so you have to go to the food bank and I go pick up food for you. Like, whatever. That doesn't define you. That's not who you are. Um, so how do we come back to respecting and honoring the person um, and remembering, upholding their dignity and their agency and sense of self? Um, that's, that's really at the heart of it. And you said earlier, and you've said it many times, that's such an individual experience. Like there's no formula that works perfect for one and perfect for the other because everyone's coming at, coming to it from a completely different place. And that's that makes it very hard to do at scale mm. without yeah. like a shared kind of working mindset of, yeah, I'm going to have 10 different versions of this today and I've got this training and skills and my own mental capacity. Like, and again, I want to touch on that in a second you know, as the practitioner, as the support worker, how centered and solid you have to be with yourself to be able to now move through, I'm not sure how many patients or, or how many clients you would see during a day, but that's a lot of, that's a lot of self-management to then come to these individuals and support them and meet them where they are. Cause it's not about where you are. And, you know, as a person in the role that you're in, how much has that been a factor? Does that empower, does that energize you? Or can that also be draining in, in itself just as, as the, as the practitioner? That's a good question, Tyler. I mean, I think it's a bit of both, but I think ultimately it's just remembering the person first, like the client person-centered care, um, remembering that this person's been through a lot, like from a trauma-informed perspective, um, and, and remembering what they're going through is not their fault. Um, yes, they could maybe work on putting more effort into building skills and uh, resiliency and capacity to transform things and kind of move through their recovery maybe a bit quicker or differently, but there's so many barriers and it's really complex, right? Especially when you bring in the addiction piece. Um, right. <clears throat> so. Pulling on that thread, getting back to family and some of the challenges there, how much, you know, you're, you're you as a practitioner, you meet this individual and you, you don't necessarily have history. You don't have a story with them. In families, I've seen so often, even my own family, some drama, my parents split up, my sister and my mom haven't talked for years. And if I look at it fundamentally, my sister is, has been unable to forgive my mom. And I don't want to go into a big diatribe of what yeah. that, that's 15 years, but fundamentally it's 15 years later. The thing itself is long past that whatever happened is it's, it's so over, but she just can't, it's like a bad after school special. She can't just pick up the phone and be like, Hey, 10 years has passed. We're both different people. Let's move on. And I'm watching this set up of all of a sudden my mom is going to be at the end of her life and my sister has not spoke to her for 20 years because she somehow couldn't forgive herself, couldn't forgive her. How much is forgiveness? And again, that's my own. My sister listens to this. She's like, that's not what it is. And anyway, that's a whole other story. <laughs> but at the end of the day, the inability to forgive and move on. And my wife said that my, my parents split up and it was messy. And my wife said, she goes, it feels like you're the one of the ones of the whole family that just forgave them and allowed them to be who they are now. And I'm like, well, yeah, but that's so much easier for me and for them. And now I have a great relationship. But when you think about someone who's been in a family and tried to be supported and they faltered and caused pain, embarrassment, shame, all the things to the family unit. 
how much is that forgiveness a huge part of allowing that other person to move on as well as yourself? When you don't forgive, you kind of keep yourself stuck too, but that's another story. Do you see that come up or is that a, even a topic speaking of kind of vague, but tangible things, the word forgiveness? Such a good question. I really appreciate you bringing that up um, because it's instrumental to the family system. And you know, the crux of forgiveness is understanding. And I think if, it, we're talking about families supporting, let's just talk about myself, right? So my family okay. supporting me through my mental health journey, um, having the ability to to forgive and because that's going to transcend the alienation as well. That's going to transcend that, that um, sense of isolation coming from my side or feeling ostracized or feeling judged or ridiculed. Um, and that, that, those feelings do come up. I think that's natural, but um, it's so transformative to be able, and not everyone can, can forgive. Like I will be honest and say in my family, um, there are people where there's more hesitation, even in friendships. I've had friends that are not really forefront impacted by my episodes, but just the fact that they're like, whoa, like Robin had this happen recently and you know, oh my gosh, some of those trigger words like mania and psychosis, people kind of <clears throat> back away a little bit, right? Um, and I have, and sometimes it's hard to meet new people or it's hard to relate or talk to people um, about things because my life trajectory has been quite different um, because of the impact. But I do want to, I do, and I hope, I hope she listens to this uh, <laughs> podcast, but I do want to put out a really strong kudos to my sister, Megan, who and I don't want to get all emotional because <laughs> that's like, okay. Emotions are real. We're, we humans are messy and that's okay. <laughs> I, I really can't talk about forgiveness without talking about my sister. I know Tyler, I know you know who she is. I, I do. Well, that's how we were introduced. That's how we got to, that's how yeah. we and I got connected. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So my sister's a wonderful example. Um, she's just a, a power force of being able to say, you know, we're going to work through this. You know, I love you. I'm going to step up to the plate. Like um, I'm going to advocate and, you just need one person, you know, you just need one person in your life. And that's from the client side, the unfortunate sad part and why a lot of people are caught in the mental health system for services because they don't necessarily, not always, but they don't necessarily have a lot of support. They don't have a Megan Zimmerman and they don't have, you know, so. You used a powerful word there. And since we're going down this thread, I love it because it's very, it's very human. You use the word love, you know, forgiveness, love. Again, I was listening to another podcast. So I'm clearly on a big podcast show these days. And he's like, you know, you're never truly going to be happy if you don't have love in your life. That was like the, you know, the, you know, when you listen to a podcast and they give you that opening statement, you're like, oh, am I going to listen or not? And he's like, you know, and, and to be willing to love, to lose love and have all the things around it, it is to be human. And if you don't have that, you're never going to live a fulfilled life. Boom. Okay. Now it was a hook to get you to listen. But I've been thinking about it and, you know, even that word sometimes, even in the male culture and they love you, man, and like that kind of stuff. It, it's interesting how it gets thrown around. But when you have that truly in your life and have friends that love you and family that love you, it's a better, it's, things are good. Things are better. I'm just going to be bold to say that. Mm -hmm. If I'm alone, if I'm isolated, I don't have people in my life. Love is probably the last thing that's floating around me in an energy field <laughs> to make mm -hmm. me feel like I can move forward and, and be forgiven with love. I don't, those are sounds like terms that don't show up much in, in the, the clinical environment. Mm -hmm. Which is so important, but also speaks to how living with mental health compromises and challenges relationships. It puts strains on relationship. It put, puts strain on partnerships. You know, I've lost partners um, because of my mental health. And that that's hard to say, to be honest. That's, that's a really hard, um, it's almost like a confession, you know? Yeah. <laughs> um, but that's, you know, that's just, that's just how it is, you know, and, and, um, not, not everyone is going to, it's not, I think it's important to remember if I would say anything to someone living with mental health, especially people who have episodic type of manifest, you know, manifestations of their illness is that it's not your fault, you know? And I think when things happen, when you're sick, you, there's so much self blame, you know? Right. Um, yeah. Well, forgiveness starts with self too, right? We're talking about forgiveness yeah. of others. Forgiveness of self is powerful. You know, sometimes yeah. we, 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 the way we are, the way we treat others versus that inner monologue that we have sometimes, that's a very, if we talk to other people like that, like, you know what I mean? It can be a very unkind voice. And I know a lot of 
very successful, high performing, you know, by the standard of the world we live in today, Western wise, oh, this person's got it all going on, but inside there it's a turmoil. And I know they're just beating themselves up constantly because I've had those conversations, but outwardly everything looks great. Everything looks awesome. They're really, they treat everyone around them awesome, but they treat themselves terrible. <laughs> and, you know, to forgive yourself and to, to, to have a kindness to yourself, it sounds fluffy, but it's very real. And I do think it shows up differently. If you're kind to yourself, it does sneak out in the rest of your life. If you're always abusive to yourself and your behavior and always holding yourself to a standard that's hypercritical. That's just that you're, it's like you're fueling the trauma like a drip, by, by drips and drabs every day. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. For sure. For sure. Well, and, and, and at the end of the day, it's, you know, we're talking sort of kind of globally about what do we need living with mental health or what's important as part of the mental health experience to, to, you know, I don't know if I, I want to use the word thrive. That's a powerful word. I can't say living with mental health. I, I would ever say like, I feel like I'm thriving. I, I think there's times that I'm doing really well and other times where things are more difficult. But when you look at the tools or what do you need, um, especially from the system level, like um, I think being connected in a program with the system can be very, very helpful. And, and interestingly, like up until this last episode I've had, I wasn't really connected to the system. I had a community psychiatrist who was great he followed me for many, many years, um, but we kind of said, I think having more one-on-one -on -one support of someone where I can kind of turn to and say, I think things are shifting a little bit or I'm feeling yep. more stress. And, you know, I think having system support is a huge part, having family support um, and having a lot of gratitude for that. Like we touched on, that's not always accessible depending on who you are and what you've been through mm -hmm. um, and, and the social connection. And I think the other piece, like for me personally is, um, that's helped me a lot is this having a place of refuge. Um, and for me, that's really like a spiritual path. So I, mm, okay. I read a lot of Dharma, like I like, um, follow a lot of Buddhist teachings and I just find there's a lot of reframing and perspective in that wisdom. Mm. So it's right. not just the CBT and actually CBT is a lot of like more modernized sort of Dharma lessons actually. Um, yeah, and what's and what's and what's CBD? I never CBT. I never I never want to leave an acronym floating around. Mm. Oh, that's okay. Cognitive behavioral therapy. Therapy. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So Which to quick, how would you define that? You know, a uh, quick way to just somebody go. Oh, okay, I've heard the term. I don't really actually know what it means. Yeah, CBT simply is transforming your thoughts and your feelings and your actions by by beginning in one of those three spots. So if you start doing some thought work, looking at unhelpful thoughts looking at cognitive distortions, you'll probably start feeling better and then you'll feel motivated, mm. motivated to go out and do something. So um, it's this interconnection between our thoughts, feelings, and our actions. And we can transform all of those um, in, the, in the process based on wherever you start. It's like a triangle. That's, that's usually see the CBT triangle. So. Yeah, I've seen it. I've seen it before, but it's always, I, 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 never, I never miss the opportunity to... Uh, knowledge is never fixed. You know, like, oh, I thought I knew what it meant, but a couple of words you use, I'm like, oh, okay, I really, I, I right. really like that and, and, and how, how it shifts and having, having different uh, philosophies and beliefs, like Buddhism, something you can latch onto that can give you a, a set of filters and a, and a way to look at the world that maybe you weren't, you, you weren't given at an early age. You know, we, you know, we, 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 we give a set, we're given a set of filters that don't always serve us, right? I, re, I reserve the right to change my filters as, as life evolves mm -hmm. <laughs> and things no longer, no longer, no longer serve me. How much, and since we're playing with all these different words, which I love this, you know, dignity, love, and forgiveness, what about hope? Mm, you know, hope. I, I, had a, I had a leadership coach ask me years ago, and I've, oh, I've repeated it so many times. He said, Tyler, what's your number one job as a leader of an organization or of any group of people? And I'm like, well, it's a big question, and I don't know, and I'm like trying to think of the big complex answer. And he was an ex, um, he was base commander. He took a, a squadron of CF-18s into Libya. So he had been in combat, and he had led men and women in, in that theater. And he said, Tyler, it's hope. Because at the end of the day, when things are going sideways on the battlefield, and like, if you don't have hope that things are going to get better, or the hope that the guy beside you has your back and the girl beside you on the other side, you have their back, he goes, all is pretty much lost. All the rest falls away. And it always stuck with me as just such a simple but powerful answer to what I, I wasn't even going there. So it was always that moment of like, oh, wow, thank you for kind of slapping me a little bit with that information. Mm -hmm. And But when you're working with someone who has potentially been through a traumatic episode, it has caused a cascading series of negative events in their life. 
I'm assuming Hope has probably left the building a long time before, like a long time before they kind of end up sitting across from you at the table. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's a really good, good question. It's a very impactful word. Um, and I think it's a little bit loaded as well. Like I know for me mm -hmm. personally, I, I, I'm sort of realistic. It's realistic, real is realistic hope. Right. Okay. No, I like that. I like that. Mm. Because I think um, it goes back to the reframing. It goes back to perspective. Um, you know, it is this balance between kind of giving up or putting in the effort to work on your thoughts. And sometimes biochemically, your thoughts are just low and it's hard mm. to generate hope. It's hard to transform and make that shift. Right. Um, but I think having a spiritual foundation, having a spiritual path is part of hopefulness. Mm, okay. Cause I think, I honestly think if I didn't have for me, like some insight and wisdom through, you know, a, a, a system of thinking like Dharma, like Buddhist thought, mm -hmm. um, I think I'd struggle a lot because where's the meaning, no, I, I, you know, I where's the that. meaning in yeah. our suffering and how What's the meaning of, of being mm. hopeful? I think also hope is synonymous with forward thinking. You know, can you look forward? Yeah, I think, I, yes, because the, the hope is yeah. that the, the tomorrow will be better than yesterday. Yeah, I would agree with you yeah. totally on that. You, yeah. you don't hope, I, you don't, you don't hope about the past. <laughs> you hope we yeah. learn from it, but that still means the future. <laughs> totally, totally. And I think mm. it's about not fabricating too many narratives, right? Because hope can also mm. be like, oh, I'm so hopeful for when this happens and I'm going to do this and this is going to manifest and this is going to... Because there is the old, the other joke that hope is not a strategy either, right? So that, that's the other corporate right. world. Like, well, we hope it's going to work out. Ooh, hope still requires a plan and, and action and support and all, and all the things. But right. without the hope, would you even bother to create the plan? That, that, that's where I find, I'm playing around in my mind with the dichotomy of... Right. I've made the I've made I've told both stories. I've told the hope is your number one role as a leader. I've also said, well, hey team, like hope is not a strategy here. So let's put a strategy together so the things we hope will happen have a higher chance of happening. Uh, somewhere in the middle, there's an interesting space for that for that word. And you can be. It's like I don't know if you've heard of dialect dialectics, like dialectical behavioral therapy. But the I I know that. But please define it for me. Like yes, yeah. the word I have, but I couldn't I couldn't define it if I was on a game show. Mm -hmm. Yeah, essentially, you know, dialectics has had two different opposite things both can be true at the same time so there's like a uh, middle ground or a gray area between two different things so hope and being hopeful and not hopeful um you know these dichotomies um you know that's a really good example where i think you can have live in that space between both feelings of you know <laughs> i know this is going to get better and i can look forward and have a sense of hope but i also at the same time feel really bad and i I don't know what the future is going to look like, you know? I've heard it said, and I can't remember, it's like true intelligence. I don't think it's intelligence, but true smarts. I don't remember how, but the ability to hold two opposing ideas in your mind simultaneously and look at them equally without being biased by which one you either think or want to be true. And I, again, I think I'm bastardizing it a, a, a little bit, but that's not how, I didn't know that dialectics would have been defined that way. That's interesting. All right, there, you've given me a rabbit hole I'm going to go down after I get off this. I'm going to... Google, go, I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna put my Google to work after with dialectics and do a little bit because that's an interesting concept, and I think for so many of us in business and in life, we, you know, cognitive biases and um, affirmations of, you know, the opposite of the scientific method of like, well, I believe this is true, so I'll just look for signals that tell me my life is not the way I want, and how much we feed our own biases that way versus looking for something that might go, hey, you know what, that thing you thought was hopeless. Well, here's an example of a little bit of hope over here, but I choose not to see that because I've already bought into the hopeless narrative. That's really tricky to do for all of us, whether we're suffering mm -hmm. from any kind of mental health or not. I know a lot of intelligent individuals that will come up with an idea and then just look for everything that validates the idea to be true. That's how you run a project right off a cliff because you're like, well, everybody thought it was a great idea. Well, did anyone question it and think, like, what if it wasn't a good idea? Mm -hmm. And if you get that on an acute level of someone dealing with, with personal traumas and mental health, I feel like it could be a very similar narrative of like all is lost. Well, is it? Mm. I don't. I don't know. That's just the narrative that's now providing. A, you're looking for examples for. Mm. I was getting yeah. too con too conceptual here. <laughs> I think we've already jumped over that one already a few minutes ago. <laughs> so when you think about the future and where things are headed for you, and you know, even from you where you and I chatted to now, uh, just listening to you talk, and I haven't listened to your old episode, but I but the sense of like 
you feel more, you feel grounded. You feel like you're very much on a path and you, and you were then too, but there's a sense of uh, two years have passed or two and a half years have passed and you've been learning and growing as, as a person, as a practitioner. When you look at the future ahead for you, speaking of hope, where do you see things evolving for you in terms of your career? You're going to, you're going to graduate next year. Is it the, the, the dream to be able to work and help as many people as possible? Is it the, the opportunity to change the system in any way you can to make it more positive? Uh, like what, what are, what are the things that really keep you motivated to stay engaged with a lot of hard work to get to the end of your degree and then move forward? It's a good question. And I, I think it's just about really moving through the process one step at a time. Um, you know, I, yeah, I think I, I'm also very humbled, um, recently with my mental health because I've had a recent episode and I think, okay. you know, that, that kind of created an abruption. Um, it, you know, it'd been like seven years since I had had an episode and you kind of feel a little bit complacent and you go on and things feel dormant. And, and then this happens, like I said, that sense of your mind being hijacked and you go into hiatus for a bit. So, um, if anything, it's kind of helped, you know, me just take a step back and say that I am fallible. Um, that I have to remember that this condition exists because ordinarily I live pretty symptom free. Like I take medication, but you know, I'm not like someone who's constantly bombarded with symptoms and implications that make it hard to function on the day to day. Like that's not the case for me at all. It's just these, these long episodic, uh, you know, like thunderstorms that happen. Right. So that's such a good way to seven years is a one, one might've thought that it was in the past. Right. I know that's, you know, you do, you really do. So I mm -hmm. think, you know, I'm, I'm looking forward to finishing my social work degree. Um, I kind of feel like I'd like to do my MSW. Um, I'm not sure how quick I'm going to do it. Um, and what's, what's MSW again? Acronyms. The master's in social work. Okay, perfect. That's what I thought, but again, I want to be sure. <laughs> Cause I kind of like, you know, once I'm in like things shift a bit of a different place, like down the road, like this is like a lotto 649 dream, but I think it'd be kind of cool to... <laughs> Sounds a lot like hope and believing in a better future. I love it. That's okay. <laughs> well, you asked like on the system level, like I, I would, I think it'd be really great to open a treatment center. Like fantastic. Be, yeah, no, I, I love auto six forty nine level. That'd be dream that cool, dream like, dream dream, the, dream the big dream. Yeah, but again, it, that's yeah. No, that's okay. And when you look out, uh, I'm just curious. Have you? Okay, we're kind of talking very isolated. We're talking about Alberta. We're talking about AHS. We're talking about what the, the experience we have here. When you look globally. Um, or, or have you spent any time looking at other parts of the world and how they're managing? And cause we're all humans and we're all messy the world over, but again, we have very different systems, you know, what the U S system versus Europe versus the Middle East versus Asia. Uh, I'm curious if you've done any exploring and if you, I haven't either, I'm just curious, have you looked at other parts of the world and go, wow, like they've got this figured out in a different way or it's, it's not as stigmatized or it is, or it's worse. I don't know. Any, any thoughts on just kind of global perspective is, is there anybody doing this better that we can learn from? I mean, I can answer that from a lived experience perspective, being in hospital, I've been in the States, uh, in hospital, I'm in other parts of Alberta. And I, and I, I would say I'm very thankful for the services we have in Canada and the access to services. Um, it's, you know, we're still quite institutional. Um, we still see this, but I think there's the way we kind of transform or eradicate or move through that institutionalization is the people who are working within the system in terms of how they're treating clients, how are they providing services? Um, you know, we can talk about infrastructures that are more healthy, you know, and, and like more um, healthy recovery type centers, um, that kind of stuff. But um, yeah, I think, I think it really comes down to the people working within mm -hmm. that make the difference. Yeah, no, it's not buildings and yeah. beds that create healthcare. It's people, right? <laughs> totally. Yeah, we can talk about this hospital or that hospital and next, but ultimately, once you're there, you're having an experience with another human, and and, and that and that will that will dictate the positive. It's so much of exactly how it goes down is who you got to, who you interacted with when then all of a sudden you needed to be engaged with this, with quote unquote, the system, which is easy, you know, oversimplify and generalize, but for the sake of it, it's still a bunch of people helping another bunch of people. And I think that, for that sure. we forget that we forget that sometimes with the bureaucracy and the media and the headlines and all the, 
shenanigans, we'll just call them shenanigans that go on outwardly, but ultimately it's still, I need help or someone in my family needs help. Can you help them? <laughs> and what is, and what is that? And what unfolds and unfolds from there? For sure. And access and quality, of course, right? Like, yes, of course. Mm-hmm. You know, we're, we're so lucky the way our system is in Canada that, you yeah. know, yes, you could be waiting a long time, but honestly, you could walk through the ER right now at Foothills or Rocky View and say, like, I'm not doing well and I'm having, you know, a certain type of thought or whatever, and you get swallowed up pretty fast and put mm-hmm. on a unit um, to protect you and, you know, for your own safety. So that's um, powerful. I can't to, say that we have that. that. Yeah. Yeah. Robin, I really thank you so much, one, for reaching out to me and, and, and one, just feeling, you know, comfortable to come and have this conversation, you know, and you've chatted with me before. You don't know where it's going to go. We're going to have a talk and we're going to open it up and we're going to go down some rabbit holes. And we got into love and forgiveness and dignity and a lot of really powerful concepts that I think we can all just learn from, be better at, you know, see, be examples, role models of in, in our life. Um, but more importantly, thank you for just being willing to have a conversation and be, be vulnerable. And you said it earlier on, and I think we said it before we even started recording, like it's conversations like this, I hope that people can listen to, and maybe it just opens that door a little bit more for them to go, Hey, it's okay to talk about this. It's, it's actually, I need to talk about this mm-hmm. versus, you know, a lot of stigma and a lot of generational stigma around, well, we just stuff it down, just stuff it down and it'll, it'll you know, keep calm and carry on and all that kind of stuff. We're slowly moving away from that, but it's a journey. And I think everyone's on a different timeline on that one for sure. And it's not like mental health, you know, me, you know, mental health isn't, we don't talk about mental health conditions the same way in addiction treatment programs do. For instance, you know, in an AA model, you know, you'll say, oh, hi, I'm Robin. Like I, I'm an addict or I have an addiction issue. And, you know, we don't come out in mental health and say, oh, I'm Robin and I have bipolar one, but there's something powerful by just being able to say like there, there is something powerful and sort of elevating and empowering to say, you know, I do have this condition and I'm still living a good life. And, you know, there's a lot to learn in understanding mental health, you know, and I think, like I said, coming out to talk about it is a way to kind of reduce that sense of shame, try and reduce stigma, um, try and provide some education and, and erode a little bit of ignorance. Um, and try and, and hopefully generate a conversation in a space, like you said, where people can openly come out in their own experience, because it's quite a covert, um, kind of secretive, um, thing you live with because of the stigma and because of the fear, you know, it's kind of similar to coming out with a a new gender identity, you know, fear. I love what you said, erode. You've, you've said so many great little quotes today, uh, Robin. I love it. I'm going to quote you. Erode ignorance. I love, like some of the words you've used today, the way you've bolted them to put them together. It's you've really, I've got a lot of notes. I've got, I've got a little uh, Robinisms I've got written down uh, today through our conversation. <laughs> erode ignorance. Yes. And it's a good day. I always joke, it's a good day if you can learn something new. It's a good day if you can erode some ignorance yourself or others. I think that would also be a good day. <laughs> Maybe a bumper sticker. Um, <laughs> Robin, if anybody wanted to reach out or get a hold of you or, or open up the dialogue or, you know, you've empowered someone to feel comfortable enough to have a conversation, is there a preferred like link that LinkedIn, is there an email or like, you know, are you open to having people? And obviously clearly you're very open to chatting. Uh, I always love to just open the door in case somebody wants to, to give a means or an opportunity for people to speak and connect with you. For sure. Yeah. And I am pretty open about it. I mean, even for family support, you know, uh, like in the family system for family members supporting their loved one with mental health. Like, I think that that part of, of support is just as important as the person who's going through it because you go through it together. You know, it's a storm that you, uh, that you have to endure together. Um, so I'm happy to share an email and, uh, for people to reach out and connect and, do you want to throw it out? I think is it your Gmail because it's definitely I'll probably easier if I write it out in the in the in the in the post than say it because it's a it's a writing down an email always fails for me. I somehow always get a typo. <laughs> yeah, so yeah, I, I can say it. It's a R J Z I M M Y twenty thirteen at gmail dot com. R J Zimmy twenty thirteen at gmail dot com. Perfect. Thank you. I always appreciate when people put it on. We'll, and we can put it in the show notes as, as well for giving people access. Robin, thank you. Loved our conversation. Give me so much to think about, which is the gift of doing these episodes. I get to walk away and go, huh, 
man, what did I think about that? And how has it shifted? So you, I, personally, on a one-to-one, I really thank you for giving me a lot of new ways to think about things and new frameworks and shifting some orthodoxies and some paradigms uh, today, which is always always a good day. And uh, you know, I'm going to boldly say I look forward to chatting again in the future because I have a feeling this might not be, this is just one of many conversations that you and I might have. <laughs> That'd be great, Tyler. And thank you because it takes you know, your space and your forum um, and your openness to have these conversations because you know, you're opening the door and it also kind of reveals your values and kind of where you stand and um, that it's important to you to also see that mental health is talked about more openly and candidly and um, you're providing a safe space and place for that to happen. So thank you Thank you. Oh, it's, it's, it's my pride. I feel, I feel I'm honored to have these conversations and, and we just happen to have a group of people, aka an audience that likes to listen. I would have these conversations if nobody listened because selfishly I get to learn so much. <laughs> I'm just glad I can pass it on. So thank you. Thank you for saying that. It's absolutely a privilege to do it. And uh, uh, podcasting is such a fantastic medium because you can have a real conversation. You can really get into it. You and I have been chatting for an hour and five minutes and it went by for me like 20 minutes because mm. it's the art of a real conversation and not a bunch of sound bites and some you know, catchy headlines. I'm in marketing, so I appreciate sound bites and catchy headlines. But if you're going to really get exposed to an idea, you've got to be willing to get into a conversation about it. Mm. And uh, in our busy lives, sometimes that doesn't always happen. So uh, I, this, is, this is a rare privilege and a great way to, uh, I don't know when this will air, but it's a Friday morning recording. So it's a great way to, to roll into the weekend with a whole bunch of uh, to openness to some new ideas. So uh, Robin, thank you so much. It was an absolute pleasure and uh, best of luck and full support on the journey. And I look forward to chatting with you again. Thank you so much, Tyler. You as well. Thank you.